Romans chapter 5. I also have on the insert in your bulletin the first five verses of Romans 5 that we'll be looking at this morning and some points to follow along in the message. I've been working through a topical textual series called uh, Lamentations for Today. And we started off in the book of Lamentations seeing God's sovereignty over suffering in our lives, that God has a purpose and a plan to bring His people through suffering. And He is the one who is providentially caring for us in the midst of that. He's the one that gives us hope in the midst of suffering and mercy. He's the one that we can find joy in the midst of suffering, as we saw from First Peter. And this week, as we look at Romans chapter 5, I want us to understand how our salvation relates to our suffering. Romans is laid out in a very systematic and careful way where Paul, almost as in a courtroom, is making his case point after point and building together this framework, this systematic theology. It's a beautiful way in which Paul builds his case in this magnum opus of theology. His doctrinal foundation is that man is fallen and guilty and deserving of God's wrath, but through Christ Jesus and faith in His finished work, we can be reconciled to God, and we, by faith, can live out of that reconciled life a new life. And so, as we reach chapter 5, we see this uh, foundation of salvation, and then the ethical implications that flow from this foundation. We see that on top of this foundation of salvation, suffering can produce endurance, and endurance can produce character, and character can produce hope. We find hope in the face of suffering as we read together. Romans chapter 5, follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your powerful Word, the sword of the Spirit. We thank You for Your Spirit indwelling every believer, illuminating Your Word, encouraging us to believe and lay hold of the truth before us and empowering us to live it out by faith. Lord, I thank You for the helpfulness of Your Word in facing struggles, in suffering. Lord, I pray that we would be better equipped to face life's trials because of Your Word. Lord, the variety of suffering that we face, whether it's in our physical bodies, or whether it's emotionally, or with, its, with relationships, or just life circumstances, Lord, that variety is what You and You alone know. You know every hair on our head. You know when the sparrow falls to the ground, and so certainly You know our sorrows 
and our suffering. And you, Lord Jesus, are a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can find grace and help in our time of need. Thank you for your word and spirit and for our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, like the book of Romans, our Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms build a logical framework of theology for us to live by. Uh, In a systematic way, we see unfold and build upon what our purpose in life is, to glorify God and to enjoy Him. We find out how to do that in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It teaches us what we believe concerning God and our duty that is required of us. He tells us of how He's created us in His image and likeness and holiness, righteousness, with dominion over the creatures. He tells us how He rules over, over all things through His work of providence and that how mankind fell from that perfect estate that He had created them into an estate that is sinful and miserable. The world that we live in is miserable because of the rebellion of our first parents, and we live in the midst of that the misery of being alienated or separated from God, the pains of this life to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. But God didn't stop there. He entered into a covenant of grace to deliver us out of all that misery and to bring us into salvation through a Redeemer, Christ Jesus. And His plan unfolds and His purposes continue to uh, just amaze us as we see His plan not only work out from eternity past, but to work out into our individual lives. I remember learning catechism as a young child, and as we should with our young children whose brains are like a sponge, we should just pour into them the truths of God's Word and of catechism so that as they grow older, we can pull out from that rich resource explanation and description of of living a life for Christ. And so, I remember after seminary going to my first church and working with children and unpacking this catechism with those kids, going through recitation after recitation and and just growing in my understanding of how how God put together this plan of salvation for me. And as a young person, I realized that He saved me from my sin and misery, and He has a place for me in heaven. And that brought me joy, and I think most of my thoughts were towards heaven and what will future, what will be there in the future for my salvation. And I guess I didn't think too much of connecting the dots as to, okay, what is the benefit of being saved here and now? How does being saved help me face the suffering in this life? I guess as my eyes were opened more and more to death, to sickness, to hurt and to harm, I started longing for a deeper answer as to how does this salvation, how does a relationship with Jesus change the way I face suffering today? Well, I came across question 36 at one point asking about the benefits in this life that accompany or flow from our justification, adoption, and sanctification. Our salvation has present-day benefits, and they are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. And one of the first footnotes for that question in our catechism 
is Romans 5. I think Romans 5 is the richest explanation of how your salvation, my salvation, benefits us here and now as we face suffering. And so, as we walk through this, I feel like I'm not really doing justice to the whole book of Romans or chapter 5, the first five verses, because so much can be said about this rich portion of Scripture. But I want to make these four points that we have in our salvation a firm foundation for facing suffering, that we have access by faith, that we can stand in grace, that we can hope and glory, and finally, that we can rejoice in suffering. Let's look at this access that we have by faith in verse 2. Leading into that, verse 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Paul's building on his argument in chapter 4 that Abraham, the father of our faith, was not justified by works, but by faith. And we too can't put our confidence in being a good person or acting righteously. We have to put our trust in faith in Christ's work. So, we've been justified by faith, meaning we, got, we have peace with God, and that's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith. By faith is an important concept for Paul and the entire Bible that a right relationship with God, being at peace with Him, being allowed into His presence, it has to come by faith. And this faith is a gift of God to us. Our catechism says that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace where we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. It's not just about believing. It's about believing, trusting, resting in Christ. All of your weight, all of your confidence is placed in Him. And so, access by faith. Literally, this word access means to bring near, a leading or bringing into the presence of, the act of bringing to, a moving to. It means providing admission or access with the associated thought that one gaining access has freedom to enter by virtue of the assistance or favor of another. You're not barging in to God's presence. You are granted access you are allowed to come. It's a word that was uh, used for a right that is granted to someone to enter into, say, a king's presence. A king's presence. You couldn't just walk into the presence of a king and say, hey, here I am. In the ancient Orient, as we were, as we have seen in the story of Esther, this access being granted was a life or death matter. In Esther 4, all the king's servants and people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king's, into the king's inside inner court without being called, there's but one law, to be put to death, except to one who the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Serious consequences if you just barge in to a place that you haven't been granted access into the throne room of the king. In chapter 5 of Esther, we read that the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, and she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
it shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. So being granted access by faith is a great privilege. With that access comes the ear of the king, that you can speak to the king of the universe because he has granted you access. God doesn't just say, well, I guess I'll save him and grudgingly call you into his kingdom, but then doesn't have any further dealings with you. He welcomes you in and he asks you, what can I give you? That access has wonderful privileges. Thomas Vincent, when he was commenting on the Shorter Catechism, said about uh, our resting in faith. He says, the soul doth rest upon Christ for salvation when being convinced of its lost condition by reason of sin and its inability, together with all creatures' insufficiency, to recover it out of this estate and having discovery and persuasion of Christ's ability and willingness to save, it doth let go of all the creatures and renounce its own righteousness and so lay hold on Christ to rely upon Him, to put confidence in Him and Him alone for salvation. Do you have access to the throne room of heaven by faith in Christ? It's only by faith in Christ. And week after week, as we invite you to the table of the Lord, we encourage you to examine your heart. Are you trusting in Christ alone and His finished work? That's how we get access by faith. This access by faith also leads us to stand in grace. Again, verse 2, through Him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Another translation says, into this state of God's favor, or into this place of highest privilege, or into His unmerited favor. One that I like is also, into this new relationship of grace. You see, we're given access to stand in grace. And standing in grace is not just a a concept or an idea. It's a relationship of peace with God. It's a relationship of access to our Heavenly Father. It's a relationship that should build confidence in us because we're standing in grace. It's not just a state that we're fluxing in and out of. It's a position that is fixed. Harry Ironside distinguishes between this uh, state and standing of Romans 5. He says, standing refers to the new place which I am put by grace as justified before the throne of God and risen in Christ forever beyond the reach of judgment. State is a condition of the soul. It's an experience. Standing never varies. State is fluctuating. My standing gives me title to enter consciously as a purged worshiper into the holiest and to boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. That's our standing as we have access by faith. It's no small thing. I think when we face problems and trials, difficulties, we should stand out from the way that world faces those because we have access and we can stand. It's a fixed place that God has put us where, according to Hebrews 4, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help mercy and grace to help in time of need. 
Yeah, that's one of the benefits in this life we have is grace. And an increase of grace happens as we grow confident in our standing, as we grow confident in our union with Christ. I belong here, not because of me, but because of Christ. We can stand firm. And what do we do as we stand? We find hope in glory. Verse 2 again, through Him you've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope is the main factor that our society demonstrates their need for Christ. Their hopelessness is a result of a life without Christ. Life is not all roses and gumdrops. Life is hard and difficult, and there are plenty of miseries in this life, and and without Christ, it's a depressing world out there. Hopelessness and depression are so tied, as we read in Scripture, often the term hopelessness is a description of that depressed state. And without access by faith to stand in grace, what hope do we have? And so, it's pretty normal, I think, for people to be in this state of depression if they're being honest about the world that they're in. But we as Christians, we also find it difficult at times. We also find it hard to cope with the challenges and trials of life. But we have access by faith. We can stand in grace, and that makes us different. Why don't we realize that? Why do we forget that? Why do we go through life not remembering that favored status that we have? Matthew Henry said, those and those only that have access by faith into the grace of God now may hope for the glory of God hereafter. There's no good hope of glory but what is founded in grace. Grace and glory begun, the earnest and assurance of glory. That's what we can hope in, and it's a firm hope. It's not a wishful thinking. It is a firm and settled hope in Christ. But again, we, we get depressed when we forget what the gospel really means, this foundation that's been laid for us. We start to put our hope in other things, and that's what this chapter really reveals is that when our hope is in something temporal or someone, that hope is going to disappoint. It always does. The hope that we have in Christ is the only hope that doesn't let us down. And so, when we face suffering and difficulties, it starts to reveal what are you putting your hope in? What are you really trusting in? It starts to expose what the second commandment warns us about. Don't make any graven images or don't have any idols. Now, I don't guess that many of you are carving wood statues or forming iron or silver or gold statues to bow down to, but you know the biblical representation of idolatry is anything that is more important to us than God at any given moment. Even things that are good things, when they become ultimate things to us, take root in our hearts and that hope is misplaced because it's in someone or something that's not God. That is idolatry. In Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, 
discovering the grace of lament. He says, lament is the language that calls us as exiles to uncurl our fingers from the objects of trust, the things that we put our hope in. Lament helps to uncurl our fingers. He goes on to say, he uses this example of a beaker of water that looks clear to us but has uh, a thin layer of sediment on the bottom of it. Suffering bumps the beaker of our lives. It stirs up the sediments that we forgot about or tried to hide. Fear, pride, covetousness, and self-sufficiently see lie dormant. But pain can reveal those things that are our covert enemies. Hardships reveal the idols. And he uses these ter- this term idols. And as he says, the Bible Uh, an idol in the Bible is simply an object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God. Where are you finding your meaning? Where are you finding your hope? Where are you finding your confidence? If it's anything other than God, when our life shakes up, it's what we're grabbing for. It's what we're resting in, what we put our weight on. The beautiful hymn that reminds us that solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. We have that hope in God. So, what is your hope in? You don't really know absolutely until those trials shake you up, until your beaker of water gets stirred up and you start to see that sentiment, and then you can see where those idols have crept in your life. One area of struggle that I routinely face is probably putting too much confidence in myself and putting out an appearance that I have everything together, that I don't have any weaknesses or failings, but that Nathan's got everything figured out. The problem is I don't, so I'm fooling myself to think that I'm fooling you or even that I'm fooling God for sure. But when God brings even a little bit of suffering into my life, and I start reaching for and clinging for things, I start to see where those idols are. So, the thing that happened the other week was that brought up this um, idolatry in my mind was a small thing, seemingly, but I lost my wallet, okay? I don't lose my wallet. Since high school, I have not lost my wallet, People who lose their wallets don't have things together. Wallet losers usually have other problems in their life too. They just can't manage things and take care of their stuff, and they're just careless with things. I'm not a wallet loser. Now, the hard part was not having to replace the money in there or the credit cards or go in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles and get the new driver's license. Honestly, those things went pretty smoothly. The hardest thing for me was to have to admit to people, um, I lost my wallet. Can you check your car again? I've been to my car four or five times, and I can't find it. I've looked in all those same places five or six times. I still can't find it. I just felt like a loser. Nathan, why do you make such a big deal over something as insignificant as that? That's what I'm trying to figure out. See, why is my heart so pricked by that? Why am I so self-conscious about that? If I really take that response and put it under a microscope like I should, it starts to reveal where my hope is. And I ought to be able to then 
repent of that and change where I'm going to put my confidence, how I'm going to portray myself. Am I going to forget my pride and arrogance? And am I going to cling to Christ? Finally, we need to rejoice in sufferings. That's a hard thing to swallow because in verse 3, Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings. It's an interesting argument that he's making. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And if that's not enough, we rejoice in suffering? That's kind of a head-scratcher. Like, Paul, why are you putting this argument about sufferings in here and how we're to rejoice in it? And we are not to rejoice as some sort of sadist who says, hit me again, I love it when I get beat up. No, it's rejoicing in what the suffering is going to produce because he lays out for us then a chain of change that takes place. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. It starts with hope and ends with hope. The hope of glory is the foundation, but we rejoice in the sufferings and then the production of endurance and then character and then hope. It's kind of a chain that needs to all be connected. It's, it's like another science experiment in elementary school, taking the battery and connecting it with the test leads through the switch and over to the light bulb and then back again. Right? You know how to make that circuit and those connections. If you fail to make all the connections, the light bulb doesn't go out. It doesn't light up. And so, when we have suffering in our life and we fail to endure, we short-circuit the system and we end up hopeless. We end up being like the world around us instead of those who have been given access by faith to stand in grace and the hope of glory. When we connect that great salvation to our sufferings, we can endure, we can build character, and we can have hope. And that makes us strong to stand. And it roots all the way back into God's grace. It's not because I'm a particularly tough person or I'm exceptionally courageous. No, my faith and trust in, is in the one who is powerful. Uh, he's the battery that has all sufficient power. And am I connected to that battery and making the connection of endurance and grace and character? Is that producing hope? When we face suffering and we short-circuit it by immediately looking for a way out, we're going to end up hopeless. When we face suffering and we endure for a period of time but we don't have character produced in us, we end up hopeless. We sidestep the process. This word for sufferings is, is kind of a picturesque word. It's a word for being crushed by intense pressure, difficult circumstances, suffering or trouble pressing upon from without. It's sometimes translated persecution, affliction, distress. All these press hard against our soul. And so when that pressure squeezes in on us, what happens? It weighs us down. Charles Spurgeon talks about how this affliction can be channeled for the good end that God designs for hope. 
he says, the Lord gets His best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. As sure as he, God puts His children in the furnace of affliction, He will be with them in it. You see, God just doesn't set you into suffering saying, good luck with that, see how you do. He is with us every step of the way as He gives us access by faith into this grace that we stand with the hope of glory. He's there with us so that suffering is producing endurance, so that it is producing character. It's the fruit that comes out of the salvation that is His responsibility and His work, and He grows that in our lives bit by bit. As a kid, I learned like many children, the fine art of eating grapes. If you got seedless grapes, green or red, just pop them in your mouth and chew them down. They're great, right? Then we went to pick grapes that were different. These were Concord grapes, and my mom was going to make grape jelly out of them. Okay. So, as a kid, grab a cluster of grapes. These look good. Take one of those grapes off and start chewing on it. That skin was bitter. If you've had that kind of grape, you then have to learn it's not the skin that you eat. You pop the grape into your mouth and you eat the sweet inside, right? Seems like common sense. Well, that worked for the longest time until I started to realize that the longer you squeezed that skin, the sweeter the grape actually tasted. The, the sweetest portion of the grape is closest to the skin, and it kind of sticks to that more than the center that just pops out easy. If you want to get the sweetest juice out of the grape, you got to squeeze it the longest. Well, that's exactly what we see in the affliction that we face. Our suffering is meant to produce in us the sweetest of fruit in our lives, endurance character and hope. Tim Challies applies this concept when he says, victory doesn't come through escaping or evading such trials, but through meeting them and enduring them. The right questions are not, how can I get out of this? How can I get back to a place where all these irritations and temptations are gone? How can I get to a place where there's nothing to spark my temper or to put my patience to the test? The soldier who flees the moment he hears the first gunshot is not the hero, but a coward. Rather, you should ask, how can I pass through these trials and not fail as a Christian? How can I endure these struggles and not suffer defeat? How can I be provoked but still speak with measured words, bear insults with meekness, and return gentle answers to even the most insulting words? This is the true concern of Christian living. And I would add, you're not going to find the answer in yourself. You're, you're not going to be able to produce that fruit through anything natural. It's completely supernatural, accessed by faith, standing in grace, filled with the hope of eternal glory that God gives us in Christ. It's hard to face suffering, but when we do, God grows us. God works in us a great fruit that we couldn't otherwise produce in ourselves. I saw another science experiment. If beakers of water and alligator clips and light bulbs wasn't enough, I saw a video of 
a science teacher with a giant cable in the middle of his room and a 13-pound bowling ball affixed to it that was pulled back and back and back to the edge of the room, and when let go, went back and forth, but didn't go back as far as it started, and went back and forth and didn't go back as far and back and back. It's the law of the conservation of energy, maybe. You can look it up. And so it says that every time that you let go of that bowling ball, um, it's not going to come back as far because of friction, air friction and whatnot. And the video shows the professor holding the ball right here at his face, just touching his nose. And when he lets go, it goes all the way back. And the real test comes as to whether you'll believe this law of the conservation of energy when the bowling ball starts hurtling back at your face. Now, there's a few fails on the internet, as you imagine. Somebody who leaned in a little too far, oh, not a good thing. Um, or somebody that pushed the ball instead of just let it drop, bad fails. But the scientist said, now I want a volunteer to come up, stand in front of the bowling ball, and do you believe in science. You just need to trust in science. Those are the words that he said. When you're facing the suffering in life, you don't have to trust the science. You can trust God's Word. You can trust what He lays for us here in the book of Romans, this beautiful salvation that we have that is so rich and powerful that enables us to face even the most difficult suffering and endure and to see character work into our lives and bring hope. We don't have to shy away. We don't have to look for answers in anything other than in Christ and the hope that He gives us. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that You are our Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that we pray according to Your riches and Your glory that You would grant us that we would be strengthened with Your power through Your Spirit in our inner being. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And, oh, Father, that you would give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response.